0: So Joshua chapter 10 last week was the uh, <clears throat> the southern campaign. Some kings from the south got together, attacked the people that Joshua had become the suzerain to, made a vassal treaty with, so Joshua, being a good suzerain, went to the aid of his vassal, and uh, God won the battle for Israel, <clears throat> fighting alongside them, or rather them fighting alongside him, and they were able to... Destroy, overthrow the warlords of the southern part of Canaan. Now they're going to turn because the same thing is going to happen again in the northern kings. Chapter 11 starts out. It says, then King Jabin, or then Jabin, king of Hazor, heard of this. People say Hazor. In Hebrew, it's khatzor, um is the way. So it bugs you that I say Hazor and you read and you've always heard it pronounced Hazor or Hazar or whatever. Uh, just, it's Hatzor. That's the name of the place. And I emphasize it because it was an incredibly powerful city. Hazor was like the capital of this whole area. It was the powerhouse. It was the big kid on the Canaanite block. So Hazor was an important city in northern Canaan. And so when King Jabin of Hazor heard this, meaning the destruction, he heard everything that Joshua had done down south, he sent word to King Yeovah of Madan, um, some translations say Maron, but there's, some, there's a textual variant, Madon or Maron. Well, in Hebrew, R's and D's look almost identical. And so it's probably a textual variant. Um, that's just for super nerds out there that are really picking the text apart. But King Jobab of Maron to the kings of, uh, of Shimron and Akshath. These are fun names. There's a video on Disciple Dojo YouTube channel, so you should subscribe to that, or on Facebook, you should follow that. us there. And I have a video called How to Pronounce Old Testament Names. And it gives you three simple rules, I think it's four simple rules, for pronouncing Old Testament names that make it way easier than you would think it would be. So, shameless plug for that video, Disciple Dojo, How to Pronounce Old Testament Names. But, we're gonna get a chance to in just a minute. <clears throat> so he sent word to the kings of Shimron, Akshath, and to the northern kings who were in the mountains, in the Arba, south of Kinnereth. Kinnereth is the Sea of Galilee. Today in Israel, it's called Lake Kinnereth. If you go to the Sea of Galilee, that's the name of it. Um, in the western foothills, and in Naphoth Dor on the west, To the Canaanites in the east and the west, the Amorites, Hizzites, Perizzites, Jebusites in the hill country, and to the Hivites below Hermon in the region of Mizpah. So where is this? Where are all these places? Our eyes are glazing open because you don't have a map in front of you. This is all in the north. This is all in the northern area. This is what would be today Galilee, Nazareth, uh, above the Sea of Galilee in that area. So this is everything northern Israel. So, the king, king of Hatzor, the big man, remember all these kings are big men, they were like gangsters, they were they were warlords of their little fiefdoms, but the one of the big, Hatzor was the big boy on the block, sent word to all of these kings that, hey, there's trouble down south. So, all of these kings are coming together, verse 4, they came out with all their troops and a large number of horses and chariots, a huge army, as numerous as the sand on the seashore. That's a stock phrase in the Hebrew Bible. You've heard it before. Where have we heard it before? Numerous as the sands on the seashore. Yeah, the promise. The promise of Israel that God will make your descendants as numerous as the stars in the sky, as numerous as the sands on the seashore. This should clue you in. The Old Testament uses hyperbole. It uses exaggeration. The point of this is not to say that there were however literal sands, grains of sand on the seashore there are, that number of army, no, that couldn't even fit in the, on the planet. Uh, no, it's to mean that there was a vast army, almost uncountable, massive army. And they came out with their horses and chariots. For those of you that were with us for the Exodus study a few years ago, we know about horses and chariots. They're, they're the battle tanks of the ancient Near East. Horses and chariots determined armies winning or armies losing. They determined if you were a superpower or if you were a nobody. So the fact that these northern kings have horses and chariots is huge because Israel does not have horses or chariots. Israel is on foot. And so this in and of itself would change the tide of a battle. It's the reason superpowers became superpowers. It was, the, it was the atom bomb before there was an atom bomb. It was the thing, the machine gun, before there was, when there were just bows and arrows. It, was, it changed the fate of battle, horses and chariots. And so that's how you have to see it. That's why God told Israel, by the way, back in Deuteronomy, remember? He said, when your king comes over the land, don't go down to Egypt to die, horses and chariots. God never wanted his people to stockpile arms to determine their might as a superpower in the region. Why? Because he was their stockpile of arms. He was their protection. It's the irony today of people who praise God so much about how sovereign he is, but then are determined to stockpile arms to protect their people. And it's like, whatever you believe about guns is cool, and armies and military and government and all that fine, different political views there. But scripture, Old and New Testament makes it pretty clear that the battle is God's in battles that matter. And especially, especially, especially for his covenant people, for his covenant people of Israel. And that's what Israel was. So they are now facing tanks, so to speak, as foot soldiers and a coalition of armies as vast as the seashore. Why? Because these kings heard Just like in the previous chapters, just like with Rahab, they heard of what's happening. So Israel is coming into Canaan. We always think in our minds, Israel just came in and mowed everybody down, wiped everybody out. Both of the battles so far have been defensive battles. Have you noticed that? The last battle, the southern campaign, started as a defensive campaign because the five kings came together to attack the Gibeonites. And Israel came to their rescue. Now these kings are coming together to attack Israel. So yeah, there's the conquest. Israel's going to drive them out, and that was what Israel was sent to do. But in God's sovereignty, it's done in the context in both instances of defensive wars as reacting to this shows you the condition of the Canaanites. It shows you the condition of their hearts. It shows you their motives. And we've also seen that not all the Canaanites react this way. We have examples, too, in the book so far of Canaanites who have chosen not to, to attack israel who have heard and said we want to be on their side and they gave the right response but these kings these folks in the north are doing like their counterparts in the south and they're hearing they're knowing and they're still choosing to attack and that's the difference between a hard heart and a heart that's open so the lord said to joshua Do not be afraid of them, because by this time tomorrow I will hand all of them over to Israel slain. You're to hamstring the horses and burn their chariots. In other words, get rid. You're not going to take over their technology. You're not going to use their implements of war. You're going to destroy them. So Joshua and his whole army came against them suddenly at the waters of Merah and attacked them. The Lord gave them into the hand of Israel. They defeated them and pursued them all the way to greater Sidon to both That's how you say that, Mizraphoth Mayim. In the valley of Mizpah on the east, until no survivors were left. Joshua did to them as the Lord had directed. He Armstrong the horses, burned their chariots. Got rid of these implements of war that had made Hazor and his buddies the superpower of this region in Canaan. Chased them all the way to greater Sidon. Sidon is way up north. Tyre and Sidon, way up north like Phoenicia area. So this shows you, this isn't a single day thing. This, these two chapters comprise months, possibly years. And we're just getting the condensed account of these military campaigns in a stylized version. Verse 10, at that time, Joshua turned back and captured Hazor and put its king to the sword. Hazor had been the head of all these kingdoms. That lets you know, the author's letting you know, this is the, the, the head, he's cutting off the head. Everyone in it they put to the sword. They harem them, not sparing any breath. We talked about that last week, about the hyperbole and the image of not sparing any breath. What that means is completely destroying all the vestiges of this city and anyone who chose to remain. The purpose was to drive out the Canaanites. And anyone that chose to remain in transit and fight against Israel were to be utterly destroyed. And to be harem, to consider been uh, donated, not donated, put, put under the ban, so to speak. And so everyone in it put the sword, they totally haremed them, not sparing any breath, and he burned up Chatzor itself. That's a huge statement. It's like the major city of the power of Canaan, and Joshua burns it. Joshua took all these royal cities and their kings, and put them to the sword. He haremed them as Moses, the servant of the Lord, had commanded. Yet Israel did not burn any of the cities built on their mounds, except Chatzor, which Joshua burned. The Israelites carried off for themselves all the plunder and livestock of these cities, but all the people they put to the sword, until the harem them not sparing any breath. As the Lord commanded his servant Moses, so Moses commanded Joshua. Joshua did it. He left nothing undone of all that the Lord commanded Moses, and that's referring back to Deuteronomy. So here's the thing. We mentioned this last week. We'll say it again. It flat out says, of all the cities in the north, only Chatzor was burned. So when archeologists and others talk about, well, we don't have any evidence of a massive destruction layer at this time in Israel throughout the land, well, duh, because it didn't happen. Only Chatzor was burned. Chatzor, Ai, and Jericho are the only cities that are burned in the conquest. Why? Because back in Deuteronomy, God promised Israel way back, I think it's around chapter 6 or so, said when you go into Canaan, you're going to drive them out, and you're going to inherit the cities. You're going to take over the cities. You're going to live in houses you didn't build. You're going to drink from cisterns you didn't dig. You're going to eat from vineyards you didn't plant. I am driving the Canaanites out, and you are replacing them as my judgment on these nations of Canaan, these particular nations. Canaanites. And this isn't carte blanche for Israel's actions in the future. They were not ever told that they could do this to any other surrounding nations. This does not have any bearing on later actions. So again, we want to be careful about reading ancient biblical texts, especially into modern politics. where right now in the land, issues of land and driving out and whose land is whose are hot-button issues. This is for covenant Israel against Canaan at one particular point in israel's history and it is never repeated in the old testament but at this time god israel is god's judgment on the canaanites and on their canaanite religion and so verse 16 joshua took this entire land the hill country all the negev the whole region of goshen the western foothills the araba the mountains of israel with their foothills from Mount Halak, which rises towards Seir, to God in the valley of Lebanon, below Mount Hermon, way up north, he captured all their kings and struck them down, putting them to death. Joshua waged war against all these kings for a long time. This is, again, keep in mind, you're getting a summary. We, we read these two chapters, 10 and 11, and we think it's like a blitzkrieg. Boom, go in and take it, and it's just this one, and that's the way it can appear on a surface reading if we aren't reading carefully. But no, this was a long campaign. This was over a long time. And they didn't drive out all of the Canaanites. They didn't take all of the cities. What they did was they won the wars. But as everybody knows, winning a war is not the same thing as completely subduing a land. Anybody remember Mission Accomplished back in the Iraq War, right? W on the aircraft carrier, Mission Accomplished. Right? How many more years of fighting went on after that? Right? So there's a difference between winning the war and then ongoing controlling or mopping up or driving out or administering and inhabiting a place. And that's what's going on here. Joshua's winning the war. (laughs) But it took a long time. Verse 19 except for the Hivites living in Gibeon, the ones that made a treaty not one city made a treaty of peace with the Israelites who took them all in battle. It's interesting that they would mentioned that. The implication if you read Joshua commentators, what they tell you is the implication of this one sentence is that had other cities made the treaty, had other, even God said don't make a treaty with them, the Gibeonites subverted that through deception, made a treaty and Israel had to honor it. It was seen as basically being crafty and, and siding with God and God's people, and the implication of this sentence is, you just wonder if other cities had done that, would their fate have been the same? But they didn't do that. The other cities, all the other cities other than Gibeon and Rahab's family, opposed Israel militarily, came out to attack them. Verse 20, for it was the Lord himself, this is Exodus language, listen, for it was the Lord himself who hardened their hearts to wage war against Israel so that he might destroy them, totally exterminating them without mercy as the Lord had commanded Moses. This is a statement of God's judgment on the Canaanites and it's stark and it's brutal and it's intentionally that way because for 400 years, God had given the Canaanites a chance to repent, to return for 400 years. This goes all the way back to Genesis 15, and now the time is up, and so Joshua was the means by which they were finally destroyed. There's a point where God's mercy runs out. That's an uncomfortable truth, but in biblically speaking, it happens numerous times in history. There's a point where God's mercy is to the thousands, he extends his mercy. He's a merciful God. He's already revealed himself as a God of mercy. He's revealed himself to Abram as the God who will spare an entire region of evil if just 10 righteous people can be found in it. So he's a merciful God, but there's a point at which his mercy runs out. And this is one of those points. And we don't know when other points are. We don't it's not up to us because we're not the judge of all the earth. We're not the one who's in charge of deciding who has reached their full measure of sin and who hasn't. That's God and God alone can pronounce judgments. So we just have to let God be God. <coughs> Jesus ran into this in his ministry. His followers pointed out two tragedies that had happened recently. And, and they said, hey Jesus, what about when Herod mixed the blood of these Galileans with the sacrifice? It was, a, it was a gross, horrible thing that Herod had done. And Jesus said, what, you think they were more guilty than any other Israelite? meaning no bad things happen because it's a fallen world and jesus said or what about the ones who the tower of siloam fell on and killed them all you think they were more evil than other israelites and that's why a tower fell on them no he instead said but unless you repent you're going to be destroyed the same way meaning we are all going to face judgment at some point we're all going to face our creator at some point So these incidents of tragedy, these incidents of violence, these incidents of when people are on the receiving end of God's judgment, or even if we think they're on the receiving end of God's judgment, those should cause self-reflection rather than trying to ferret out and figure out God's ways. I just posted last night some thoughts on Notre Dame burned down yesterday, and already people are jumping to Fitted into an end time prophecy thing. Like why did you know, Notre Dame burn down, why? Because of Catholic pedophilia. Well, I posted on, somebody posted on Facebook. I was like, well, God's got bad aim if he was aiming for the Catholic church because the Vatican is a lot further away than Notre Dame. You know, or some, oh, it's because France is so secular. It's a secular nation. Well, there's plenty of nations where there are far fewer Christians. Japan's way more secular than France in terms of Christianity. And they didn't get hit. You know, like, when we start to try to guess who's, who are the Canaanites in our day, so to speak, who's God sending judgment against, you know, you, you'll hear pronunciations. I'm, I guarantee it in the coming weeks. Notre Dame was burned down because France was too secular. France did something that Israel didn't like. France took Muslim refugees in. France turned their way from God. France did whatever. You're going to hear theory after theory after theory. And the point of it all is... I go back to Jesus' words. Do you think that the ones who the tower fell on and killed were any more wicked than you or other Israelites? And the implication is no. So you repent or else you too will perish just like that. We have to just let God be God sometimes, even when he's uncomfortable. Like my favorite passage in the Narnia books about Aslan. Lucy hears about Aslan. Mr. Beaver, Ms. Beaver's telling her about Aslan, and she says, Oh my goodness, sounds terrifying. Is he safe? And what's Ms. Beaver's response? No, of course he's not safe, but he's good. And that's the God of the Bible. Of course he's absolutely not safe. In the book of Joshua, he's anything but safe. But we have to trust, as he's revealed himself in Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, and Numbers, Deuteronomy, and I mean, he's good. And good and safe are not always the same thing. And a good God will allow bad things, and a good God will revoke his mercy at some point at his prerogative. That's the difference. Israel didn't get to decide these wars. Israel didn't get to decide to go out who to, to attack, and they responded because God was leading the army, and that's why these passages can't be used to justify. Modern wars being fought, they, they were used... They, Preachers, even in America, there you can read Cotton Mather and other Puritans would read the passages of the Canaanites to the Union, not well, wasn't even the Union at the time, to the colonial soldiers before they went out to destroy Indian villages. And they would say, literally, read Cotton Mather's equating the Indians of America to the Canaanites and telling the soldiers, you are the Israelites, exterminate them, drive them out. People have been misusing Joshua since it was written. And so that's one of the reasons that we go through in its context chapter by chapter to show this is a specific war led by God against specific peoples, and it was announced 400 years prior as the result, going to be the result of judgment on particular peoples. So very, very important that we put it in context. So Joshua, after this uh, the northern campaign, there's one left footnote to clear up, verse 30, 21. At that time, Joshua went and destroyed the Anakites from the hill country. From Hebron, Debir, and Anab. From the hill country of Judah. From all the hill country of Israel. Joshua totally destroyed them in their towns. No Anakites were left in Israelite territory. Only in Gaza, Gath, and Ashdod did any survive. Who were the Anakites? Anakites, there's debate. Some people say they're pre-flood peoples. That they were giants. They were this, they were that. We just know there's descendants of Anak could be a classification, could be a nickname, could be a term used for giant fearsome warriors. Uh, all the Anakites we know of in the Bible are giant and fearsome. And Goliath is going to be one of them. There's going to be a few others that are mentioned later. But these were the, some of the ones who the spies, when they went into the land, and they said, we can't take the land. That there's Anakites there, and we're like grasshoppers before them, and, and they're just too strong, and At the end of the account of the battle, even the Anakites, even the mighty feared giants of Canaan, Joshua, and Israel completely destroyed. So Joshua took the entire land, just as the Lord had directed Moses, and he gave it as an inheritance to Israel according to their tribal divisions. Then the land had rest from war. That's a super summary of the next 12 chapters that we're going to read. That verse... Then Joshua took all the land, and then he gave his inheritance. The next half of the book is going to spell out that inheritance point. Because for Israel, that's important. It is now the wars are over. Now we have to divvy this land up. Because we are a confederation of tribes. And the covenant has not reached its completion in terms of us being settled in the land. But the war stage is over. The battles are over. From, from leaving Egypt to settling Canaan. And chapter 12, we're going to go on, because chapter 12 is just a summary. It's just a summary of it. It's basically like, now we've told you the story, now let's run through the itinerary. This is what was accomplished from the plains of Moab all the way into the northern, southern and northern campaigns. These are the kings of the land whom the Israelites had defeated and whose territory they took over east of the Jordan. So this is on the east bank of the Jordan. From the Arnon Gorge to Mount Hermon, including all the eastern side of the Arba. Sihon, king of the Amorites, who reigned in Heshbon. He ruled from Aurora over the rim of the Arnon Gorge, from the middle of the gorge to the Jabbok River, from which, the, which is the border of the Ammonites. This included half of Gilead. He also ruled over the eastern Arba, from the Sea of Kinnereth, the Sea of Galilee, to the Sea of the Arba, the Salt Sea, it's the Dead Sea, to Beth uh, Yeshemoth, and then southward toward the slopes of Pisgah. So this is this is this happened in Numbers. It's recounting the stuff that we read about in Numbers, the defeat of King Sihad. Then above him, the territory of Ah, King of Bashan, one of the last of the Rephites who reigned in Ashtorel and Edri. He ruled over Mount Hermon, Salakah, all of Bashan to the border of the people of Gesher and Makah, the half of Gilead to the border of Sion, King of Heshbot. So north of him, King Ah. These were the powerhouses in the east bank of the Jordan River that Israel took out. And remember, this land was divided among the two and a half tribes that settled there. Moses, the servant of the Lord, they they were conquered while Moses was still alive. Moses, the servant of the Lord, and the Israelites conquered them. And Moses, the servant of the Lord, gave the land to the Reubenites, the Gadites, and the half-tribe of Manasseh to be their possession. These are the kings of the land that Joshua and the Israelites conquered on the west side of the Jordan. It's called the West Bank. So the East Bank has already been, that was ruled by two big kings and their smaller fiefdoms. Now Moses conquered them. Then he died in Deuteronomy. Now in Joshua, everything we've read, this is the recounting of that. These are the kings of the land that Joshua and the Israelites conquered on the west side of the Jordan. From Baal Gad in the valley of Lebanon to Mount Halak, which rises towards Seir. Their lands Joshua gave as inheritance to the tribes of Israel according to their tribal divisions. It's going to come later in the book. The hill country, the western foothills, the Araba, the mountain slopes, the desert, and the Negev. The lands of the Hittites, Amorites, Canaanites, Perizzites, Hivites, and Jebusites. These were the peoples all the way back in Genesis 15 that God said, This is the land that your descendants will inherit. Will drive out the inhabitants of, because the sin of those people at that point will have reached its full measure. My mercy will have run out on them, and that's what's described. And then it gives because this is also a national document. It gives a list of each of these kings, these big men. Remember, these aren't kings like we think of—King Charles, King George, King Henry. You know, any of these king. You know, King Abdullah. Any of these. No, these are just like people that ruled these little garrisons or city states. The king of Jericho, and it lists how many. Like there were more than any, I don't know why. But the king of Jericho, one. The king of Ai, near Bethel, one. King of Jerusalem, one. King of Hebron, king of Yarmuth, king of Lachish, king of Eglon, king of Gezer, king of Deber, king of Gedder, king of Hormah, king of Arai, king of Libna, king of Adullam, king of Makeda, king of Bethel, king of Tepua, king of Hefer, king of Aphek, king of Lasharon, king of Madon, king of Hatsur, king of Shimron, Moran, king of Akshap. King of Tanakh, King of Megiddo, King of Kedesh, King of Jachniam in Carmel, King of Dor in Napa Dor, Goyim in Gilgal, King of Tirzah. 31 kings in all. So the purpose of this final summary, 31 people groups, 31 Canaanite kings came against Israel and Israel destroyed them all. And that's exactly what God had promised. So, this is literally halfway through. This is is the halfway mark of the book of Joshua. The very next chapter is going to fast forward, and Joshua is an old man. And he's going to be divvying up, and he's going to be. So, that lets us know that this took a long time. These chapters 11 and 12 took a long time years. But what's about it. We read this and we're like, oh, this is boring. Uh, king, king, so-and-so, king, so-and-so, who cares? But for covenant Israel reading this, every single one of those kings is God checking off the promise, checking off the promise, checking off the promise. I promised you. It happened. It happened. It happened. It happened. So it's important recounting Israel's history, these battles. It's important for them as a nation. It's important for them as a covenant people. Because they're going to have to look back on this when they look in the future and remembering the covenant. And the prophets are going to call them back to this and say, remember what God did. Remember prophets like Micah and others who remember all the things God did from when you were in um, Moab until the covenant renewal ceremony. And that's all of these things. So it's important to keep that in mind for Israel the covenant purposes but at this point this concludes the military section of the book of Joshua and we're moving now from hyperbolic battle account of the ancient Near East now we're going to move into land grant treaty in the ancient Near East and that's when a king would grant a suzerain would grant his vassal their territory and would be very careful to mark out where it is So that everybody knew what belonged to everybody, so that people would live in harmony, so that people would be no confusion, and there'd be no infighting, and there'd be none of that in theory. Of course, none of that actually happens because people are sinful. But that's going to be the rest of the book of Joshua, and that's what we're going to go through over the coming weeks. However, we're out of time. Next week, we will not meet. There's an event here in this room, and it's a paying event, so when there are those, we got to (laughs) go. Ruth has got to make money so that they can then have us for free. So next week, we won't meet. Week after, we'll come back, we'll meet, and we're going to start into the second half of the book of Joshua. All right? So there's plenty of seconds up here. Feel free to help yourself. There's some to-go containers in the back. Otherwise, have a great week, and we'll see you in two weeks.